Welcome to the College Investor Audio Show, where we talk about the biggest issues impacting millennial money, from student loan debt to side hustles to building wealth. We will show you how to get out of debt so that you can build real wealth for the future. Welcome to the show today. Yep, there's been a lot of talk in the news over the past year or two or so about broad student loan forgiveness, the implications of that, what that would look like. So today we talk about how to actually implement broad student loan forgiveness. Let's get right to it. So you know the president does not have the legal authority to forgive all federal student loans with the stroke of a pen. There may be a way for the U.S. Secretary of Education, though, to legally implement broad student loan forgiveness through a regulatory change. Remember, the four income-driven repayment plans are also student loan forgiveness programs. The income-driven repayment plan forgives the remaining debt after a number of years in repayment. We have tons of articles and podcasts on this subject, by the way, at thecollegeinvestor.com. One of the income-driven repayment plans, the Income Contingent Repayment, or ICR plan, provides the U.S. Department of Education with broad regulatory authority. Congress specifically authorized several key potential changes in ICR. This regulatory authority is so broad that the U.S. Department of Education could use the rulemaking process to issue new regulations that transform ICR into a new student loan forgiveness program. Very interesting. The version of broad student loan forgiveness would be limited to federal loans in the direct loan program, though, that had been in repayment for at least five years, maybe at least 10 years. That's kind of the version that this would be going toward. It would also have to be means-tested due to the nature of income-driven repayment plans. All right, with that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive a little bit deeper on what is income-contingent repayment. So ICR was the first income-driven repayment plan. It became available in 1994-95 in the direct loan program. Other income-driven repayment plans were added in 2009, including the IBR, the PAYE, or PAY, and the REPAY in 2015. Income-driven repayment plans base the monthly loan amount on a percentage of discretionary income. With ICR, the monthly loan payment is 20% of discretionary income, where discretionary income is defined as the amount by which adjusted gross income, AGI, exceeds 100% of the poverty line. I hope that makes sense. ICR forgives the remaining debt after 25 years' worth of payments, or a total of 300 payments. Regulatory authority to modify ICR. Let's dive in here real quick. The four income-driven repayment plans are, in effect, student loan forgiveness programs because they forgive the remaining debt after a specified number of payments, as we just discussed with ICR. They all kind of work the same. The U.S. Department of Education has the legal authority to modify the income contingent repayment plan into a new repayment plan with more lenient requirements for student loan forgiveness, as it's actually already done twice before. The statutory language defining ICR provides the Department of Education with broad regulatory authority to modify the details of the program. And we'll get into a few of these. For example, they can specify the repayment term required by the repayment plan. You know, the repayment term must be an extended period of time. 
not to exceed 25 years, but can be shorter than 25 years. That's key. They can also specify procedures for determining the borrower's repayment obligation based on the appropriate portion of annual income. And a couple of other things they can do, they can make adjustments to the borrower's loan payments based on special circumstances, such as loss of employment, and they can also obtain certain information from federal tax returns from the IRS to determine eligibility for and repayment obligations under an income contingent repayment plan with the approval of the borrower. The information includes tax filing status, adjusted gross income, and number of exemptions, as well as verification of non-filing status. Those are just a few things they can do. They can actually do more than that, which you can dive deeper on at thecollegeinvestor.com. Just dive right into this article. So this regulatory authority is broad enough that the Department of Education was able to use it to implement the pay-as-you-earn repayment, or pay, and revised pay-as-you-earn repayment, repay, repayment plans. These regulations included a smaller definition of discretionary income, a smaller percentage of discretionary income, a shorter repayment term, and various requirements for forgiveness of the remaining loan balance. But these changes involve all of the dimensions required to implement a new student loan forgiveness program. So, the U.S. Department of Education can use this regulatory authority to issue new regulations that modify ICR into a new student loan forgiveness program. As follows. The repayment term can be shorter than 25 years. Congress did not define what it meant by an extended period of time. However, they did say it can't be less than five years. So, unless the borrower specifically requests a shorter period, which would necessitate an application process, of course, the shortest repayment term for an extended repayment plan is 10 years. Public service loan forgiveness requires 120 qualifying payments, 10 years worth of payments, so it would be odd for an income-driven repayment plan to require less than 10 years. Otherwise, the Department of Education can define extended period of time in, its, in the regulations as it sees fit. For example, let's say the Department of Education could choose to implement a new income-driven repayment plan that forgives the remaining debt after 12 or 15 years of payments, if it so wished. So when determining whether the end of the repayment term has been reached, the Department of Education must count all time periods during which the borrower was in an economic hardship deferment, a standard repayment plan, or a reduced payment under an income-driven repayment plan, or making payments of at least the standard repayment amount under other repayment plans, except for periods when the borrower was in default of their loans. This includes time periods during which the borrower made payments on loans in the Federal Family Education Loan Program FFELP, and Federal Perkins Loan Program, not just the direct loan program. The repayment obligation must be based on a portion of the borrower's income. This portion can be zero, though, as is currently the case for borrowers with income under 100% or 150% of the, of the poverty line in the current income-driven repayment plans. The U.S. Department of Education could provide full forgiveness of the remaining debt to low-income borrowers whose income falls below a specified dollar threshold, like $50,000, for example, a specific multiple of the poverty line, like 250% of the poverty line, 
or a specific multiple of the borrower's student loan balance, or through a similar change in the definition of discretionary income. Although, the repayment obligation must be based on a portion of the borrower's annual income, this does not prevent the consideration of several years' worth of income. So, if the U.S. Department of Education bases the repayment obligation on a percentage of discretionary income, they could choose high enough of a percentage of discretionary income to prevent wealthy borrowers from qualifying for full student loan forgiveness. For example, if the annual loan payments were based on 20% of the annual amount by which exceeds $50,000, over five years the total payments would equal the amount by which income exceeds fifty dollars So someone earning like $100,000 would have to pay at least $50,000 toward their student loans. Probably not going to want to do that. Because the borrower's approval is required for the U.S. Department of Education to obtain information from the IRS, obtaining financial information from the IRS to implement loan forgiveness might require an application process. Just That would be just to prevent automatic implementation. But, given the strong financial incentive of loan forgiveness, this should not be a significant problem. Nothing prevents the Department of Education from establishing a deadline by which the borrower must apply for the student loan forgiveness. Okay. Will this survive legal challenge? Proposals for broad student loan forgiveness are likely to face legal challenge. However, student loan forgiveness that is implemented by issuing new regulations is more likely to survive that legal challenge than student loan forgiveness implemented through executive order, for instance. So the Congressional Review Act of 1996 allows Congress to overturn new federal regulations in their entirety by passing a joint resolution within 60 legislative days after publication of the new rule. Passing the joint resolution requires just a simple majority vote of the House and Senate, but it can be vetoed by the President in which case a two-thirds supermajority will be required to overturn the veto. The joint resolution is generally not subject to filibuster either. This is in contrast to regular legislation to modify or block all or part of a new regulation, which is subject to filibuster and does not benefit from expedited consideration. The 60-day period resets if Congress adjourns in the middle of the 60-day period, since 60 legislative days generally spans four to five months, this allows a new session of Congress to overturn regulations issued during the last several months of the previous session of Congress. I do have to point out, and hope you're following along here, <laughs> that Congress is unlikely to overturn regulations when there is a split control of Congress or when Congress is controlled by the same party as the president. If Congress does not use the Congressional Review Act to overturn a new regulation, it significantly weakens the argument that the new regulations are contrary to the intent of Congress. After all, Congress had the opportunity to overturn it through the Congressional Review Act, but they didn't do it. This is in contrast with executive orders, which cannot be overturned through the Congressional Review Act. Okay, all that said... Regulations can also be challenged by bringing a lawsuit under the Administrative Procedures Act if the court finds that the regulation is arbitrary and capricious 
an abuse of discretion or otherwise not in accordance with the law, if a regulation is the result of reasoned consideration of the facts and law, as well as adequate consideration of the consequences of and potential alternatives to the proposed rule, it's likely to survive such a challenge. The judicial system provides a lot of deference to regulations established by the executive branch, provided that the executive branch follows proper procedure. Phew, that was fun. Kind of a little recap on government class 101, if you will. If you want to dive a little bit deeper into this and find out more, you can always check it out at thecollegeinvestor.com. Just copy and paste the title of this podcast right in the search bar. You'll see it pop up first thing, and you'll be able to dive a little bit deeper on this. Thanks so much for stopping by today, and we will talk to you again real soon.